1: You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so God, we just come before you and we enter into your presence. And we ask you to come and be fully present, fully tangible that may that we may experience your love and your grace in a new way this morning. We ask that your joy would fill this place, that we would join with so many others around the world singing the praises of your name. For you are worthy of our affection. So we just ask you to come and fill this place. May our hearts respond with praise and adoration. Have your way this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So
0: Holy Spirit, burrow deep into our hearts and plant a new seed of love. For all love comes from you, God, for you are love. And God, that that seed would bloom and flourish and our hearts would respond in greater love to you, that you would reorient our lives to you, that instead of loving our ego and things and fame, that we would love you above all else. And to do that, we need your love, God. We need more of your love to be birthed inside of us and may we stretch our roots toward the river of life and grow deep roots and flourish. God, receive our love today as we receive yours in this beautiful, holy dance. We say more, more of your love, God, because it will change us. It will bring us to life it will motivate us. It will transform us. We breathe deep of your spirit who has joined us here. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
2: This message has been stirring in my heart for a long time now. And this is, I can't, I can't even really explain it, other than this is a passage that it feels like I was wrestling a pig, that every time I feel like I got it cornered, it somehow gets away from me, and I'm sitting on the floor, and this passage has just, has just made me throw myself at the feet of Jesus, um, like I think Scripture should do. I think Scripture should not be, we're extracting the facts, it should be such a good wrestling match with our Savior that we leave changed by it. Does that make sense? This is happening to me with this passage. So we've been in Mark, chapter 1. We're going to go through Mark. Um, we're going to spend some time in Mark 21, Mark one twenty one through 45 today. But I wanted to pray first. And so if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes with me. Uh, Lord, this is your word. I'm just a man. And they need your word. And while they know this is not where they get fed, this is where the community comes together to hear the word of the Lord together. So let your presence continue in this place. This is just as much worship as what we just did. Your word fills people, fills cities, fills churches, fills homes, fills the streets, fills the deserted places. God, your word is meant to fill the earth. So we proclaim it. We want to proclaim it, God, the way that you did, God. Today as we talk through Mark, bring life to people. Let it be the kind of word that is so magnetic and so lit, alive, God, that we leave so enamored by you, God, that we have to throw ourselves at your feet and say, I have to depend on you today. I have to depend on you this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus has already started his ministry. Jesus has submitted to baptism. At the hands of a man, Jesus has been sent into the desert to be tested so that he could clarify whether or not this is the voice of the Lord or this is the voice of the enemy. And Jesus is now entering in society. He's already selected his guys, at least four of them, and he's now walking. And this passage is where he begins to start, how would would he minister? Like, how would he start to do his work? But first, before I do that, I wanted to just kind of throw a couple things at you. First thing is, God is love. Sarah mentioned that a minute ago. Everybody say, God is love. God is love. That's bigger than we just said. It's bigger than even us to understand. God is love, and his every action is motivated by love. There's not an action that's like, you miss that one. It's not like he's like, I missed that one, but my other ones. Every action that he has, every movement, every word, every life he enters into, every situation is motivated by love. There's not one that's motivated by anger. Even the ones that appear to look like they're motivated by anger, are founded in love. Everything. Every interaction you have ever had with your Savior. The real interactions. Some of us don't even know when we're interacting with him. He's still angry. That's not even him. But the real ones have always been grounded first in love. Okay? I want to read you Psalm 139. Bill, can you pull this up? This might be a different translation, but just walk with me. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't contain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day, (laughs) that's baffling. Darkness and light are alike to you. What? For you formed my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book, were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am with you. This is your beginning. Your very beginning at it all was this. And this was motivated by, by passionate, unexplainable love, the forming of you, the color of your hair, the kind of eyes you have, the kind of body you'll have, what your thoughts would be naturally like, the things that you would be inclined towards, your skills, like the athletes out there, the mathletes out there. <laughs> We've all been formed by our creator, and it started first in love. There was, this is baffling to me, this is not even what I'm preaching, there was no like sneak through person. It was like Jesus turns his head because somebody's and the angels are dancing. He's like, oh, look how beautiful. And then the Holy Spirit forms someone he didn't see. Like still him. Every person in here started out of an act of love so that you would exist. And I'll even go as far to say in the season, places, all of that, your parents, all of it is an act of love. We know this because God is love and his every action is love. It says even in 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love God does not know God, for God is what? For God is love. Okay. All right. So that was my little precursor I had to get to just because you've got to know before anything happened, it started, love started towards you. That's how it started. Before anything happened, love. And now we're going to get to this passage. So can you pull up Mark 1, through 45? This will be your main text today. I hope you guys have been diving into this with me. I hope you go home and read it. Do the inductive study of it. Read it all the way through, the whole book of Mark. Challenge yourself at home, right? Don't look to me. Like, I I prayed this. I say this all the time. I am not here to make sure you eat. Does that make sense? I'm not. You have a a word. You have the presence of Jesus, right? Like, the veil is torn. He can be in your home. Oh, my gosh. So... So when I preach this to you, and it'd just be awesome if this became like daily bread for you, right? Like daily bread. Let this fill my thoughts, my home, my prayers over my children, my breakfast, if you eat breakfast, my coffee, if you drink coffee. Let these moments be saturated. These times are all in the presence of Jesus, right? Not just here, but I do love here. Like, I love it. So So Mark 1, 21 through 45. All right, there's going to be a lot of word today, all right? And I've said this before. If you're ever in a service and there's too much word, that's more of a you problem. Um, I would sit down with you and talk about it, but it's just really important. So so they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Just for you to know, this is how Jesus starts his ministry. He goes into the towns, and whenever there's eight or ten families that are together, they are required by Jewish law to start a synagogue. And he would travel, and you're allowed to go do that. Like here, somebody just shows up here, and they're like, I'm preaching today. We'd probably be like, probably not. You're probably not preaching today. <laughs> uh, but that's not just how it worked, if you were a rabbi and kind of known. So he shows up and preaches in the synagogues. And the people were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It's actually translated more, you have come to destroy us. Literally this, okay, before you just absorb, this is the word, we're reading it, a setting like this, somebody stands up in the back who happens to be possessed by a demon, right? Just like we're all super comfortable with, and begins to interact with the preacher who happens to be Jesus. And Jesus doesn't freak out. And the people don't even freak out. That's what's, The people in this synagogue, they're, they're not even amazed at the demon. Like, for us, if that happens, we're like, time out. <laughs> Homeboy's a demon talking to the speaker. They're, it says in a minute, I, they're not even amazed at that. They're amazed at Jesus' powerful words. That's like a whole three messages right there. <laughs> That's like how far we are from where this is, so... I'm going to keep going and try and find my spot that I'm not going to find. So, I know that you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, (laughs) the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated amongst themselves, saying, what is this? Everybody say, "What what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him? Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee and immediately after they came out of the synagogue they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her and he came to her and raised her up taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she wanted them and she I'm sorry Let me make sure I'm at the right spot. And he came to them, and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she she waited on them immediately. She got healed and waited on them. Another just baffling. And he came, I'm so sorry, guys. When evening came, after the sun had set, still in the same house, still in the same spot, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door of this one house. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the, de- he was not permitting the demons to just stay with me." So he just allows the people with demons to stay. They just weren't allowed to talk, right? So you guys can, you guys can stick around, but if, you're, if you happen to be possessed by a demon today, we would just really appreciate it if you would not speak. It's already different from what we would do, okay? Because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house, and he went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. It's funny, after his desert experience, the deserted places become where he goes to hear the voice of God. We run from deserts. Jesus runs into them. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touches the leper who you're not supposed to touch. And I know you all know that. And he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the, the leprosy left, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warmed this person and sent him away. I'm sorry, I cannot read today. I did ten font, and that's a mistake, I think. You should do bigger than ten font when you're reading the word. <laughs> immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I'm just going to stop here just for a second. This is the one dude in this story that approaches Jesus correctly. He does not possess a demon. Jesus is, I believe, weeping and laying his hands on to heal him, and then he leaves the wrong way. doesn't remove his healing. He just, what Jesus just said, wasn't, he's not going to do it. It's pretty baffling. You'll hear this later, but the reason is because Jesus wanted to do more ministry and because he would become famous, he wouldn't be able to do more ministry. Fame would actually block his ministry. He did not want to be famous for the wrong reasons because people wouldn't fall in love with Jesus. They would fall in love with miracles. He did not want people to fall in love with miracles. So what is this passage not? Just first and foremost, because it is one of the craziest passages in the Bible. This is not a design to focus on miracles and healing. Is miracles and healing bad? No, no. This is not meant and intended for us to say we are going to pursue miracles and healing. Those are good secondary things because Jesus is standing in front of people wanting to be enough, but they want something from him. And he's like, but I'm right here. Do miracles, do miracles. Miracles are great. Like, they've happened in my life, they've happened in your life, but they are never the end. They are never the end. They are a tool in the belt that Jesus carries to lead people to him. Does that make sense? And always beautiful in the right context and always disgusting in the wrong context. If our focus has become that, we want fame. If we want to be known as the person who does miracles, if we want to be known as the awesome preacher... That's already impeding what Jesus wants to do. Does that make sense? He submits even to man at the beginning of the story. And so, Jesus for us becomes God's exact answer to what we need. In this passage, what you see is him traveling from place to place, and whatever actual need is in that actual place, he meets. Not perceived needs, not wants, but actual needs. He steps into a synagogue. This is baffling. There is a demon-possessed man in there that has been in there. This person has just been in there the whole time. But because Jesus is inserted into that setting, the realities of the setting come to life. The realities that already are there come to life. Jesus meets exactly what need needs to be met. And usually people are frustrated that he didn't do it a different way. I love that they don't even talk about what he preaches. If they talked about what he preaches right there, you can bet guys like me are like writing books about that passage, the first, like the first message. This is Jesus' first message, guys. This is the only one we should preach, right? It just says he preaches with authority, differently than the scribes. The scribes would stand up in front and be like, well, the word says, Jesus doesn't have to say, well, the word says. Jesus is the word. So every word that comes out of his mouth is like manna from heaven for that day, for that instance, in that place, for right then. And if it happens to be, I don't, there's, I'm not a demon over there. I keep pointing over there. In this passage, it feels like they're over there though. Like he's like over there-ish. So you guys are good. No demons. But it just surfaces. He shows up at a home. There's an instant need. The real need is there's a lady who has a fever who needs to be healed. He does it, right? Back to that first part. I love that he didn't say, man, get out of here. He was able to distinguish between the spirit that possessed a man and the man. So Jesus looks into a human and doesn't label him by what's demonizing him. That is so much gospel, it's hard to even move forward. To look into a human and to not label them by what you know demonizes them, even if it's an actual demon. For Jesus to look at a, a crew of demon-possessed people and not make them leave. And not even just, they just you just can't talk. You can stay, but you're just not going to be able to talk, okay? But I want you near me. Then he goes to a house. Then he goes to the streets. And in the streets, he does the same thing. Then he goes to deserted places. A couple quick things about demons and Jesus, okay? So demons, and I shared this last week, the word for collective demons, which is... One of the things mentioned here is mezekim. And that actually means, means one who does harm. That's what that means. And just for you to know, biblically, demons possess and control. So this person is, is literally possessed and controlled by a demon. But Jesus is the opposition to that. Jesus never controls and always fills. So there's a difference between being filled and being possessed. Jesus goes into the synagogue and fills the synagogue with his word. The demons possess people and control them. Jesus always fills. Jesus always fills. Why is his word important? Because it fills. It fills. You need him daily. You need him. Every time you're with him, you need him. And these things that surface, I love this about Jesus, every actual need in every actual setting, he meets the need. Not the perceived need. And people are being brought, and it even says he, he heals some of them. When he brings all the people, not all of them, he meets every actual... I just believe the people that were listening to his message was exactly what they needed. I believe the disciples following him, they were seeing exactly what they needed. The demon-possessed man, wherever he was sitting in that church, exactly what he needed. The person who was a leper, exactly what they needed. Jesus never didn't respond with compassion and love, even if rules and regulations said do not heal on the Sabbath. Do not touch a leper, which were actual laws. Jesus broke the law. So it appears that love and compassion would trump the letter of the law, always for Jesus. He would heal on the Sabbath and catch flack for it. He would be available to actual need, not just perceived need and not just a need that we can promote as a church so it looks like we really care. Look at this picture of all this good stuff we did. People are like, who cares? What about these actual people who have need in your life? What about, Josh, your friends? Not just the people you pastor, but the people who are actually, that you're actually really touching. Are we able to be Jesus in those people? Or do we just do it for a postcard, right? And like, we'll send it out. It's going to look awesome. People are going to think we do all kinds of awesome stuff. Jesus met actual needs, even if it meant disappointing religious people. Whatever the actual need is. So for you, You don't even, we're not even able to really perceive that. What are the actual needs around you, right? Not your wants, not what you perceive to be needed. You don't even know. This passage is meant to throw us at the feet of someone for us to say, what is this? What is this? The best things that have ever happened in my life, I usually start by saying, what is this and not in those words? what is this? Many of you know me and Sarah had kind of a tough thing happen. (laughs) Can't really share. But the situation threw us at Jesus' feet. What in the world? This doesn't even make sense, like according to your word. Because I'm here to get my blessing right now, right? Because I can feel the spirit of the Lord and every good thing is for us, right? And we're the head and not the tail. So what happens when he asks you to die for your friend or your enemy? Those theologies do this you have to trust that no matter what he's giving you, it is best for you, whether you perceive it or not. It doesn't matter if you perceive it. What matters if you perceive that Jesus is better than anything? And if he is, you'll follow him from town to town, from house to house. You'll follow him when when he's telling people, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And everybody leaves him and you'll say, I'm still, where am I going to go? Like, What am I going to do? This is Jesus, like everything in opposition, no fame, no building, no money, no house, no job opportunity, no status, it doesn't even compare. All of it is secondary to Jesus, but your one job is to put your eyes on him and trust him, especially when you don't want to trust him. That's the point. It's not that he's going to give you everything you ever wanted and all of your hearts, follow your heart, right? Follow your heart, bro. Don't follow your heart. Don't. The heart is wicked above all things. But Jesus perceives even the innermost depth of our being and what we need for where we are. And we can throw our eyes upon Him and trust Him. That's the gospel. These guys say, What is this? It reminds me of a passage in Exodus 16, which I was going to read, but I'm not going to read. When Israel is being led out of the desert and they're being taken from Egypt and they got to a spot and they're like, They're grumbling. They're like, you realize in Egypt we had whatever we wanted to eat. We had houses. And God's like, you realize in Egypt you were going to get killed and you were slaves, correct? We don't care. We're hungry now. Like they're being led out. So God, in his God way, provides manna in the morning and what in the evening? Quail in the evening, right? And, and they look at this manna and they say the exact same phrase. What is this? Right, And so Jesus has to show them, and this is so big, you had appetites that you developed in slavery. You had slave appetites. You wanted these things. And if I give you this milk and honey right now, you won't know how to perceive it. So I'm going to have to walk you through a season of manna where you can't even talk about how you got it. I love that we can't even be like, let's just get some manna. If we knew, if it was like peanut butter and jellies were random, we would all be eating those all the time. We'd be like, this is the food of God. It's manna. He makes it and makes it fall down like dew. We can't even perceive it. It's so different we have to say, what is this? So that we know that each day we have to rely on him to provide it. We can't even concoct it. We could do something with quail. We start a quail farm, right? But they even try and do that and it spoils, right? And people start throwing up because they want to eat that, like, we want quail. He's like, oh, you do? You want some quail? All over the place. So manna is meant to say this to them, you don't know what you need, you don't know how to make it, but I do. So you get up and you collect as much as your family needs, not as much as two family needs, as much as your family needs. And if you collect too much, it's gonna spoil the next day because you need manna every single day. In this passage, Jesus is relating himself to the manna. He's saying to us and he's saying to each situation in Mark, you need me in every situation. You don't need to perceive how to do what I'm doing in every situation. You need actual me in every situation. And any other way will not produce fruit. In every situation, I believe this, whether you perceive it or not, if you truly desire him to be that in a setting, he will be it. But you probably won't perceive it. Every person here is mesmerized by signs. The whole town is at a front door asking, do signs. We all approach Jesus mesmerized by signs. And in every one of us, he has to sanctify that because he is the sign. Jesus is the sign. The disciples don't need a miracle right off the bat because they already believe. They're just following him, right? He's not like, ah, and this morning, guys, I'm going to do miracles for y'all. Call your friends, right? Let's promote this jump. This is going to be so promotable. Let's get some inflatables. I got a huge inflatable for Jesus for this one. It's like, no. Whatever the opposite of promotional gospel was, he did in every situation and caught heat for it, and people decided to not want him because he was always willing to give what was needed for each situation, whether we perceive it or not. You don't know what you need. There's not a human in here who knows what you need, right? I remember the time when I was heading into rehab when my whole family sat around me crying. They knew, they were Jesus in my life. They all looked at me crying and said, you're getting on a plane uh, tomorrow (laughs) and you're going to fly to Utah. I remember when I had these two sins from my past, back when I believed you had to make sure you like rooted out every sin or Jesus would for sure send you to hell. Like that's his definite, that's why he's on earth. Back when I had that really awful theology about Jesus just trying to find stuff in me. I remember calling Sarah and sharing two things that are not like, they're not fun sin. They're not like, man, that guy was like dangerous sin. It's not that stuff. It was like, I'm probably leaving the church now kind of sin, all right? That's just real. And I remember her, me weeping uncontrollably, and I remember her giving the opposite of what I thought and saying, I love you, I'm here for you, just exactly what I need. I remember when my daughter, Alethea, I remember when she was about two, and she had a urinary tract infection, so this is awesome for her. Um, and I remember having to hold her arms down, and I've never seen a child scream the way that she screamed. And if you've ever had to sit and watch anybody do what they have to do with that, it's, people should have been put in jail right after. It was awful. It's what she needed. And she healed and went within like a week, right? Like, we don't perceive well what we need. We're so ingrained by the the appetites of of slavery. I think I just said a curse word in that. (laughs) We're so ingrained by the appetites that bound us that we don't even know how to perceive the right things. We want more. We want bigger. We need this church to grow now. No. We need Jesus right now to provide right now what we need right now for right now for us. And we need to throw ourselves at his feet and say, we're not doing this without you. Because you are manna, right? John 6, 25 through 35 says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. Like just bold prayers. Like we want to work God. It's going to be good, right? Like We're going to do the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? Think about this. He's trying to say, I'm right here. They're like, well, we'll do, could you like do a sign for us? You just do one sign, Jesus. It's not, seriously, you are all encompassing. You could do something, right? Like do some fish up. Do some fish right here, some bread. So that we may see and believe you. He's in front of them. And they're asking for a, a sign to see him. He's in front of them. Like he, they could be like. Oh my God. Oh my God. He's, and they're asking for a sign. It's so baffling. We do the exact same thing. We exactly do that same thing. We want more. We need signs. We need God, if you want to bring signs and wonders, you bring them. But if for most of us, you just want us to throw ourselves at your feet and trust you, I'm good with that, right? You can do whatever you want. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They're quoting what he... Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread, like this prideful, like you give us that. And he's like, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. See, we're like the prodigal. We're like the prodigal. We look at our father and say, we want our inheritance now. And he says, you're not ready for all of it. You really are not ready for all of it. I want you at my table and you want your inheritance. And then he lets the son take the inheritance, and he ends up squandering it and sleeping with pigs and eating what they eat. Because he didn't want all inheritance, no connection. He wanted them at the table. We don't know how to perceive or even do with what God wants us to to give us without him in the picture. If you ever want to know what it's like to remove Jesus from signs and wonders, look at the prodigal son. He receives all of it, and he gets all of it, and then he squanders it. We don't want to squander, and the way that we don't squander is by sitting at his table daily, requiring ourselves to say, you are the bread of life. I must have you today. I must have you. I cannot flee from you. Where would I go? It's all about you. All of this inheritance is connected to me being with you. We're the prodigals who needs to be cleansed. We want what we want, and more specifically in America right now, we're trained from birth how to be our best self, how to go after the world. You can do it all, right? You are super special. And we are, like, in God's eyes. But like, but Jesus is saying, I am your all. Throw yourselves at my feet. He heals these people. He heals these people so that they would die. Die to yourself so that I may live. So today, I'm not asking you, there's so much in this passage. I've never wrestled with a passage like I've just wrestled with this one for two weeks. But I do know, and this is what I love about Jesus, anyone who's poor in spirit in any way is drawn to him. And I'm not just like creating that in every setting in Mark. The person who is either poor in spirit, sick, and outcast, they just come to him. I kind of think that a church, a true Jesus church, should be the most approachable for people who have some kind of handicap, who are demonized in whatever way, an actual or something else, who feel sick and like they don't have a place. Jesus community should reek of those kind of people feeling like they found a home. That to me is the sign of true gospel because in this they find him and he creates a space for them and he heals them and he doesn't make them feel bad about it. He's able to decipher, this thing is not you, right, bro? Like This demon is not you. I see a better you, a cleansed you, a whole you. I'm speaking into that, and I'll cast this demon out, but I'll never cast you out. Show me one person Jesus cast out in this passage. There isn't offense. Every conversation he had removed a barrier. Every single interaction he had made it easier for people to perceive who Jesus was and then accept the gift that he is, the bread of life. Does that make sense? God, this feels like good preaching, but it's probably because you've been stored up for like two weeks. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Eucharist or communion together. This is one of my favorite acts in any Christian setting. This is common. this this builds unity. All of us approach this table, right? And at this table, there's one head and there's seekers. There's people who need Jesus and there's no perfect person. And sometimes there's someone who's going to try and kill you there. And sometimes there's someone who's going to badmouth you and take 30 pieces of silver there so that he can turn you in. But in every case, when you approach this table, he will give you what you need in that setting. Not what you want, not what you perceive you need. So all you have to do is be available and open to him to tell you what you need. But then you won't even understand it. You still have to trust him. Does that make sense? So Father, the table to me reminds me of times when I didn't deserve to come, but had in my heart that I loved you and wanted you and couldn't make sense of it, and you invited me. The table is the place where those two, the two worlds meet. Heaven and earth somehow collide right at this table. And we say, yes to drinking your blood and eating your flesh, and I do believe it's more than just a sign. Or why would you do it? This is what brings us to you. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for us so that we, we might receive new life and become a part of a family. Not someone who takes our inheritance and runs, but someone who sits at your table and wakes with you, and eats with you, and travels with you, and watches things happen with you, and are mesmerized by you, and say, what? It was that, Jesus? That's crazy. What are you doing? And you still love us even in those instances. I love that, Jesus. So, Thank you
0: again for joining us today, and please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.